Yes, 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 yes. God is good. God is good. Um, what's that? Children's church. Yes. Yes. Eventually. Just, I need you to get a neon sign. That's what I need. A neon sign. Oh, my goodness. All right. So... We're going to do a bit of brief recap. Um, we do this every week, purposeful redundancy or intentional repetition to kind of make sure we get the information that's being put forth sealed in our memory. Um, if you want to uh, turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 24. And then if you want to go ahead and mark the place, then we'll be in Matthew chapter 16. Remember that we said last week we're starting an Emmaus journey. It's not a standalone message, and it's not a series, because I'm not sure exactly the direction the Lord is going to take us in this journey of series, consecutive messages. Um, I think I have a general idea. It's becoming more clear the further we progress. But our general hope is that we literally have the Spirit of God walk with us and reveal Jesus to us in the Scriptures. That's why last week, if you'll remember, the title of the message I gave it to you was All About Jesus. And we kind of briefly followed up a little bit on that on Wednesday night, talking about the defense of apologetics, Scripture defending Scripture. So, last week we looked at the Emmaus Walk, and I asked you guys a question. And I didn't give you the answer to the question that I asked. Does anybody remember what the question was? Was the Emmaus walk a success or failure? You don't count. You're my wife. You have to hear this stuff all the time. <laughs> so was the Emmaus walk a success or a failure? And when we looked at the Emmaus walk, we looked at what occurred. The two men were leaving from Jerusalem. They were headed in the direction of Emmaus. It doesn't really say that Emmaus was their destination. They were just headed in that general direction. They were on the road that passed through Emmaus from Jerusalem. And a man comes up to them and starts asking them what they're talking about. And they're talking about Jesus. And then I made a joke and said that they were talking about Jesus to Jesus. And when I told that to my son, he cackled and laughed like any child would and we use that as a springboard to say that the one thing that should give us the most joy in scripture is seeing jesus manifested in scripture um so the man was actually jesus the messiah the son of god but he for some reason somehow that i can't really comprehend whether their eyes were veiled or whether he was just hidden or disguised supernaturally somehow he was unknown to them they did not recognize that this was jesus and so he then rebuked them for their unbelief and said oh foolish ones was it not necessary that all this stuff would happen and he proceeded the rest of the way to Emmaus to unfold the scripture from Moses and throughout all the prophets, the Old Testament, to show himself in the scripture. And so we ask the question, was the road to Emmaus a success or failure? So how many of you guys, in all honesty, this week in your personal time of study, actually asked God that question to reveal that question to you. And a couple of you weren't here last week, so you couldn't have done it. Lee did. Okay, so right now, I just want to know, how many of you think that the road to Emmaus was a success? Raise your hand. Okay, good large portion. How many of you think the road to Emmaus was a failure? couple, okay. How many of you think it was both? Kind of now, like, wait, this is an option? <laughs> How many of you think it was neither? 
Oh, we don't got any hands on that. Well, good news for all of you. The road to Emmaus was a success, it was a failure, it was both, and it was neither. And the reason I asked the question that did not, unless you didn't answer the question, if you didn't answer the question, then obviously you're wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you did answer the question, you only had four possible responses. Either it was a success, it was a failure, it was both, or it was neither. And the reason that I asked you guys that question, if you'll remember last week, I was telling you that I feel like it's my duty as a pastor to get you to this place where you can hear from the Holy Spirit yourself, to get you to this place where you can open your Bible, you can seek God's revelation through the Scripture, and the Holy Spirit will speak to you. So I started you off with an easy one that had no wrong answer. The only wrong answer was to not give an answer. So congratulations, every one of you. You are all correct. Now I'm going to explain. So the road to Emmaus, first of all, we're going to go in reverse order. It was neither because... It, scripture never gave us a specific set of prerequisites defining the journey, whether it should be they make it to Emmaus, whether they should stop halfway, whether they should go past Emmaus, whether they should meet Jesus on the road, whether they should stop and turn. There was never given any clear cut, this is what they were doing. They just happened to be on the road headed in the direction of Emmaus. So it was not a success or a failure because we cannot tell from the information given what their actual intentions were. So it was neither. It wasn't a success or a failure, at least not one that we can quantitatively discern. It was both because it was a success and a failure, obviously. And now we're going to start look at it was a failure. And we're going to do a little bit of reading, just three verses real quick. Luke 24, verse 28. It's the latter portion of their journey. This is after Jesus had began with Moses and all the prophets and interpreted them the scriptures, all things concerning himself, but he still not revealed himself to them. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. King James said he made as if he was going. Some translations will define that. He pretended that he was going. But the point is, is that Jesus was going to go further or was giving the illusion. They discerned that he was going to go further than that village that they were stopping at. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? All right, stop. The reason that the Emmaus was a failure is because they decided when they were going to stop. A very, very important truth, and I'll try to repeat this a couple times throughout the message. Wherever God is not recognized and acknowledged as Lord, His blessed and manifest presence will not abide. We will not have the manifestation of God's presence in a position of not acknowledging Him as Lord. If He's going to be there in His fullness, in the manifestation, in His glory, as what we prayed during announcements in the exhortation, if we truly want to have God's glory here, then we're going to have to acknowledge God as Lord here. We're going to have to worship Him as Lord. We're going to have to submit to Him as Lord. We're going to have to acknowledge Him as Lord. And we're going to have to reverence Him and honor Him as Lord. This is His house. This is His sanctuary set apart for Him. He is Lord. And if He is not recognized as Lord, we will not see His glory here. 
We must acknowledge God as Lord. So the problem with the Emmaus journey is they violated that principle even though Jesus was pretending or making as if he was going to go further. They did not allow Jesus to dictate the journey. They decided they were going to stop. Psalm 23, one of the most popular scriptures or passages of scripture in the entire Bible, says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What's it say next? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. If God is God and we submit to Him and honor Him as God, then He gets to dictate the journey. We do not get to take the lordship of our heart back. We do not get to sit on the throne of our own heart. We surrender to Him as Lord and we submit ourselves to His lordship. I want to teach you a very important principle and I want to use an Old Testament man as an example. Saul. Not Saul that later becomes Paul. Saul, the first king of Israel. And I want to talk to you about some of his mistakes. You don't have to have this, but if you want to, or taking notes, we're going to look at or paraphrase 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm not even going to turn there myself, just in your own study time if you want to read over those and actually read the details of his mistakes, you're welcome to. Saul was a man, and he wasn't a bad or a wicked man, he was just an ordinary man who happened to be tall and good looking. That's, at least that's what the scripture says about him. I, I can't dis, discern that. <laughs> but the nation of Israel was set up with, in a theocracy. God was the governor, the ruler, the overseer, the king. God was in charge. And he spoke to the nation about what they should do and how they should act through prophets. And occasionally Israel would get itself in trouble and a prophet would rise up to the office of a judge and deliver Israel from their trouble and they would oversee on God's behalf the nation. The last one of those was a man named Samuel. And when Samuel got old and was getting ready to die, he was going to pass that office off to his sons, but the elders of Israel came to him and said, don't do this, your sons are wicked, they're not as good as you, they don't hear from God the way that you do. We want to be like everybody else around us, we want you to give us a king. Samuel argues with him for a minute and then God says this important statement, he says, do it, give them a king because they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. God's saying they wanting someone to sit in the position of Lord over them other than me is not a rejection of the office of a judge or a prophet because you're just an ambassador on my behalf. It's actually a rejection of me as God, myself. They are rejecting me. And that's what we do when we begin to dictate our journey. We must submit to God's lordship. So Samuel goes through with it. Saul gets appointed, anointed as king. And he's not a bad king for the first couple years. He does everything that God said that he was going to do that's typical of a king. But then a crisis comes. And they're going into battle. And they're going into battle with the Philistines. And Saul, being a king in a godly nation, wants to offer sacrifice to get God's favor on the battle. But he's got the Philistines over here ready to wage war. And he's got his own army that's kind of losing morale and that's ready to go into battle before they lose morale and the enthusiasm and zeal completely and Samuel's late. According to the rule, Saul could not offer sacrifices unto God. It must be Samuel. But Samuel's late and Saul, from a natural perspective, does what any one of us would have done. See, we have this mindset when we look at people in the Bible with hindsight of being 20-20. We see what they do and we see that it's a mistake. And because we see that it's a mistake, we're like, oh, I would never do that. 
I mean, Adam and Eve, Eve in the garden, eating the fruit. You're like, man, that was so dumb. I would never do that. And we do the same thing every single day. We pick knowledge, we pick enjoyment, we pick entertainment, we pick pride, we pick everything else and reject God's presence in doing it. So our hindsight kind of gives us this skewed perspective saying, well, Saul did that, but that was a mistake. I would never do that. I would have waited until I died on Samuel. Really, you've got guys over here with swords and spears ready to charge you and end your life. And these guys won't go into battle without the, a sacrifice. So you're going to wait on a guy who's nowhere to be seen? No, what you're going to do is exactly what Saul did. You're going to take that livestock. You're going to make the sacrifice yourself to try and obtain God's favor for the battle and then go into battle. And that's what Saul did. And as soon as he was in the middle of the sacrifice, Samuel showed up. It was almost as if it was a test from God. Like, are you truly obedient? Are you truly trusting in me to be your deliverer? Are you trusting in those swords and spears and shields to be your deliverance? Are you truly trusting in what man can do? Or are you truly trusting in the lordship of Jesus? And we do that same thing every day. We're in a situation, we're struggling. Let's be financial. So when I first got saved, I wasn't married yet. I was out there, itinerant preacher, trying to work these little low-paying jobs. And I would get in a situation, my car payment's here, and rent's here, or whatever other payment it might be, whatever other bill. And I'm like, oh man, I don't have enough money to make it. So I'd pray and I'd seek God's favor on that. But five minutes after I said amen, I'd be on the phone. Hey, Mom, listen, I know that I'm trying not to ask you for money, but I am struggling here, and it wasn't my fault because my tire went flat and I had to replace my tire, and I really didn't go and blow this money. I didn't go to the mall. I didn't do this or that. I just, honestly, it's just a circumstance that I couldn't avoid. I couldn't help. So we're automatically on the phone making those phone calls like, I need this money, I need this money, I need this money, or health. I'm a firm believer to seek God for healing. However, I'm also a firm believer that if the healing isn't manifest, you go to the best doctor you can find, you take the best medication you can find, and you deal with that because you're not just fighting a spiritual battle, but you're also fighting a natural battle. You're a three-part being, and the enemy hits you on three levels, so don't deal with it on just one level. Address it on all three levels until it's obvious. You know, there's this doctrine that sweeps out. And it has its origins in the Word of Faith movement and other movements like it. But basically it says that we pray over somebody and even though they have no sign of healing whatsoever, we expect them, well, just believe that you're healed. You don't need to take your medicine. I know that there's no signs of your healing, but just confess and believe and claim and go out and live like you're healed and you'll be healed. It'll show eventually. I have personally witnessed a woman die from this. And... She went to a revival and was told that if she had enough faith, she didn't need to take medication. She stopped taking medication and was dead within days. We must address the issues as they come. Granted, we must place our faith in Christ as our Lord, but we deal with the situations to the best of our ability while trusting in Him. Does that make sense? Am I, am I losing you guys? When it comes to things like that, we work according to what God gives us. If God gives you a revelation, hey, it's Holy Spirit inspired, don't take your medicine, I would never argue that point against you because you're saying that you're hearing from the Holy Spirit, but never listen to a man's word to cease taking from medication because a man tells you that your medication is a lack of faith. 
anyway that was a side side point so Saul does what any of us would do in that situation he doesn't want to trust in what he can't see he doesn't want to trust in the coming deliverance of God he wants to deal with the natural situation but he also doesn't want to go into battle without God's favor so he offers his sacrifices while he's doing it Samuel shows up and rebukes him later on same situation almost Samuel comes to Saul and says God has spoken you need to take the Amalekites and you need to wipe them off the face of the earth and this sounds pretty harsh, but he says you need to kill every man, woman, child, and every single ounce of livestock, everything that can be attributed to the Amalekites, and you need to completely eradicate them from the earth. Get rid of them all. And I would have trouble with this. Anyone would have trouble with this, but it's a commandment straight from God. So Saul goes to war. Battle's done. They win. Samuel comes, and he's like, Saul, what have you done? And Saul's like, look, I did the Lord's commandment. I, I fulfilled everything. And Samuel says, then why do I hear the baying of sheep and the lowing of oxen in my ear? And Saul's like, well, 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 wait a second. We decided that the Amalekites had some really good livestock, so we wanted to offer those as sacrifices to God, to worship God. It's like, wait a second, that's not what God told you to do. And that's where we get that famous passage from obedience to obey is better than sacrifice. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's where that whole passage comes from. But Saul didn't just spare the livestock. He also spared the king of the Amalekites. Samuel ended up killing the king. But Saul, even though he says he killed all the Amalekites except the king, except the livestock, Scripture and the testimony of history will tell us that he did not. He said that he did, but he didn't. And here's how I know that to be true. At the end of Saul's life, he's in another battle. He's surrounded by the army, and he knows that he's going to die. But he doesn't want to be killed by what he calls an uncircumcised Philistine. He doesn't want to be killed by somebody that's godless. So he attempts to kill himself with his own sword. And in so doing... He injures himself and incapacitates him to the self to where he can't end his own life. He's still alive. And a man walking by, a servant, a shield bearer, Saul cries out to him and says, Kill me, please. I'm dying already. I don't want them to have the pleasure of doing it. You kill me. So the boy does. And later goes to David to tell him what happens. And he says, I'm an Amalekite. The very product of what Saul was supposed to eradicate from the earth ended up being the thing that ended Saul's life. Showing us that if we don't end sin, if we don't end the Amalekites and they're a representative of sin all the way back to when they were dealing with Joshua, if we don't end that, it will end us for sure. If we can't get a bondage out of our life, that bondage will end up ending our life spiritually and perhaps physically as well. And then you fast forward even later and you may see the actual intent of God in preventing a disaster from ever coming about. Years later, probably about 700, I didn't actually research the amount of years, but I'd say about 700 years after Saul's death, Persia has come and liberated the Babylonian captivity. The Jews are scattered all over Asia, all over Europe, and a man rises up, and he has the ear of the king, and he convinces the king of Persia that it would be a good idea to find every single Jew and kill them. The man's name was Haman, and then you guys probably know the story a little bit more familiar. A young girl is raised up named Hadassah. They change her name to Esther, and she becomes queen of Persia and prevents Haman's plot. The thing about Haman is he also was an Amalekite. 
And if Saul would have eradicated the Amalekites from the face of the earth as he was commanded, then Saul may not have been killed that day. He may have lived longer than that. And better yet, a lot of people might have been spared a genocide planned by Haman because Haman would not have existed if the Amalekites had been wiped out when Saul obeyed his command. The reason that I'm telling you that is because when God gives us a command, not everything that is sinful is sin in its nature. Something can be perfectly innocent, but it can become an idol to you and keep you from prayer. It can keep you from worship. It can keep you from Scripture. It can keep you from devotion with God. It can keep you from church. It can keep you from fellowship with the saints. And it can completely change who you are and put you in a state of bondage, even though it's not sin in itself. We talk about fantasy football. We like fantasy football. Fantasy football can become an idol if we're not careful, and it can affect the way that we look at God. Don't believe me? Get on it seven days a week for 10, 11 hours a day and see what your life becomes. Don't test that theory, Marty. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't test that theory, but anything can become sinful even if it's not sin in of itself. Anything can consume and capture us. That sin that you don't slay may not be out just for your life, but it may be out for the life of your friends and your family and your church and all the Christians around you. Let's pitch it to you this way. Let's go from the perspective of drugs. I say that because that's my background. We'll go from the perspective of drugs. A drug can become a bondage and completely consume and captivate who you are. And it's already attempting to destroy you, but then you realize that you don't have enough money for your next fix or for your next hookup. So what do you do? You proceed to steal or to borrow things from your parents' house and take them to a pawn shop trying to get money. First you go through your own stuff, your own jewelry, your own valuables, and then you start going through your mom's, you start going through your dad's, you start going through your friends, and then next thing you know you've become a klepto and everybody's lives are ruined by your actions. I mean, you guys see this all the time. I wouldn't advise watching it, but every once in a while we tune into Dr. Phil just to see just how crazy people can get. They can get pretty crazy. But on there, you see it all the time, these testimonies of women or men even that are older and they have become an enabler to their kids and they have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars supporting a habit, supporting a catfish or somebody overseas that's pretending to be somebody that they're not. All of these things. And it started with a little sin that became a bondage that then became a disobedience in the fact that we didn't slay it before it became a bondage. And then it kills us spiritually, works to kill us physically, but while it's working to kill us physically, it's killing everybody around us. Because if you're stealing, then you're putting a temptation on somebody to be angry at you and unforgiveness bear unforgiveness towards you. And then maybe that unforgiveness bars over into hate and then they're violating and they're becoming sinful and disobedient against God because now they're harboring grudges, they're harboring unforgiveness, they're harboring hate. Maybe they even do some things that they shouldn't do and it can even get into physical assaults. And so what happened to be several Christians by one Christian's bondage became a sin that captured them that then affected other people and now it's become several bondages in the people that are around them in relationship to them. Does that make sense? If God gives us a command and we truly want to acknowledge Him as Lord, then we must allow Him to make the decisions and obey with unquestioning obedience. If it's truly God, we obey with unquestioning obedience. 
That's not to say that we don't discern the spirits to make sure they're of God. That's not to say that we don't test things. That's not to say that we don't weigh it against the testimony of Scripture. But if we find out after testing and trying and proving that it's God, that it is God, then we obey with unquestioning obedience. Because if we do not acknowledge Him as Lord and reverence and worship and honor Him as Lord, then His glory will not be here. Amen? So that's why the Emmaus was a failure. Okay? There's a way, Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. A way that seems right, but the end is death. Saul, there was several ways that seemed right to Saul, but the end was death. So that's why the Emmaus was a failure. Why was the Emmaus a success? We're going to do a little bit of reading right here. We're going to start where we left off with the other one in verse 33. And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. This is the eleven disciples later become eleven of the twelve apostles, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, otherwise Peter. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still believed for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is what he was telling them on the Emmaus Road. All of the Old Testament, everything you read, it points to me. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay into the city until you are clothed with power from on high. All right, we'll stop there. Stay in the city. The men from Emmaus, Cleopas, and the other unnamed disciple left Emmaus even though they said, it's late, we need to tarry here, once they realized that it was Jesus, they got up, they left Emmaus, they went back seven miles, back to Jerusalem, found the other apostles, the other disciples, and there they were with them, and then they got to be in the presence of Jesus again. And I'm personally convinced, because they too heard the promise, stay in Jerusalem until I send the promise of my Father, till I send the Holy Spirit, They stayed in Jerusalem. I'm convinced that the two men from Emmaus were a part of the 120 that received the baptism on the day of Pentecost and were a part of that group that went out preaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ to all the known world at the time. So therefore, because of that, the Emmaus was a success. And therefore, because it was a success and because it was a failure, it's both. So all of your answers are correct. Does that make sense? Have I kept all of you so far? All right, now we're going to go to the main portion of our message, Matthew chapter 16. That was a good introduction. We're going to be in verse 13. So I want to show you guys the power of the revelation of God or the power 
that is in the Spirit of God revealing to you the Scriptures. Because remember, that was the point of the question, was so that you could seek the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would reveal Christ in the Scriptures to you. The Holy Spirit would reveal the will of God through the Bible to you. That was the whole point of the question, so that you could begin to hear from the Holy Spirit yourself. It was kind of a an act or a proving, if you will, a way to put our beliefs into practice. And the reason it's so powerful, if we look at the disciples on their journeys with Jesus, they say some pretty stupid stuff over and over again. I mean, we can just go back. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John go up this mountain with Jesus. He's transfigured. They see the fullness of His glory. Moses appears on one side. Elijah appears on the other. There's a cloud thundering. And Peter opens his mouth and says, God, it's good that we're here. Let's build three temples, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. (laughs) Just completely off-the-wall stuff. See, Peter didn't realize that God already had three temples built there. One was named Peter, one was named James, and one was named John. And that was really where he wanted to abide, not in temples that they were just going to build with hands on that mountainside. I'm going to go even further when Jesus sits down, and I'm not sure right off the top of my head, I think it was the feeding of the 5,000. They're all sitting there and they're hungry, and the disciples say, send them away so that they can go get food. And Jesus looks at them and says, you feed them. And they start counting the money. Like, oh goodness, you know, we've got maybe a year's worth of way it would take. There's 5,000 men, not counting women and children. There's probably eight, 9,000 people here. Like, goodness gracious God, how much money do you think we got? (laughs) Probably not much considering Judas was stealing the whole time. But the point is, Jesus then feeds them. And Philip starts having this conversation with Jesus. After Jesus says, I'm going away, and where I go, you can't come. I'm preparing a place for you. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be good for us. It will be sufficient for us. That's all we need. Just show us God. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long that you haven't known me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So all throughout Scripture, we've got these disciples, and they're asking these crazy things. James and John convince their mother to come with them to bribe Jesus to give them a throne on each side of his throne when he comes into his kingdom. Constantly in Scripture. But then you have moments like what we're about to read where the Holy Spirit really speaks through the disciples. And this is the power of when we look at the natural circumstances and we look at what face value at Scripture on our own terms and our own capabilities versus when we look at it and let the Spirit enlighten it for us. Verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, Okay, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, one of the biggest blabbermouth, impulsive, impetuous people, said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then it goes on, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, whatsoever you bind on heaven will be bound in earth, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But the point is that verse, that section of verses right there. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, my Father's revealed this to you. And then he says, now you're Peter. I'm changing your name from Simon. I'm changing it to Peter. I will build my church on this rock. So first thing, I got to say this because there's so much Catholicism in this area. Jesus is not saying, hey, your name's Peter, which means rock. I'm going to build my church on you. You're not my vicar. You're not my representative. You're not holding the keys of death, hell, and the grave. You're not going to be able to sell indulgences to get people out of purgatory into heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. And if you break it down in the original language, you can actually prove that. Um, I'm not a Greek scholar, so forgive me, but when Jesus calls him Peter, he's saying Petros, which is a detached rock. It's a standalone rock. But when he's saying Petro, or Petra, I'm sorry, Petra, it's a mass of rocks. It's a mountain. It's a formation of rocks. It's solid. So he's saying you're a part of this, but you're not the whole of this. So he's not saying I'm building my church on Peter. What he's saying on this rock, on the rock of the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh, the Messiah, the propitiation for our sins, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, on this rock, on the rock that is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10.4, it's talking about the Old Testament. They're coming out, the water sprang from the rock. It actually says the spiritual rock, which is Christ. Christ is the rock. Remember a while back in our John 3.16 series when we were going through we were calling it our foundation series. Why were we doing that? We went to the parable of the man who built his house on a rock versus the parable of the man who built his house on the sand. And what did we discover? That sand, other than parrotfish poop, which we won't talk about that, side note, is actually fragmented rock. It's pieces of rock that have been broken apart. And so many people want to build the church or their specific building or their specific set of beliefs on fragmented doctrine, pieces of the whole. They'll, they look through Scripture and they're like, well, I like this portion. I like this portion. I don't like the book of James. That's that's too much. And like, I like Romans a lot, except first chapters 1 through 3. And like I don't like any of the Old Testament. A lot of people are saying that nowadays. But they're building their church on fragmented doctrine. And what happens? When the storm comes or when circumstances arise or when the situation comes, their house, their doctrine, their theology, their faith itself can't stand on the sand and it falls apart and grates the fall of it. But yet, the man who built his house on the rock, which is Jesus, other foundation can no man lay, that house, that rock, withstood the trials, the storm, the test, the persecution, all of it, because it was built upon the rock, which is Christ. Make sense? So this past week, I made it obvious I took a trip to Tennessee. And when you're driving, you can tell immediately when you're in Tennessee. When you're coming out of Alabama and you're into Tennessee because you can look over and as it goes into the horizon, sorry flat earthers, but when it goes over, <laughs> I love some of you that are going to be listening to this message later. You go over the horizon, you see mountains springing up in the distance and you know I'm coming into Tennessee. Here, you don't have any of that. You just look for like miles and miles and miles. And maybe a tree will occasionally obscure your vision or a large piece of gravel. But there's no mountains. It's just flat. But when you come into Tennessee, you see as it folds over the 
the edge of the horizon, you see those mountains springing up. And it looks like they're just sitting on top of the earth, but they're not. Those mountains are actually caused by plate tectonics and shifting of the earth and the plates that are in the crust colliding together. Sometimes they'll rub together and they'll create a range of mountains and sometimes they'll collide and they'll create a big one. And then sometimes they'll collide really hard and they'll create a volcano. But when they collide, they jut up. It's almost like two cars hitting. They hit and the hoods get bent up. And that plate tectonics creates a mountain, right? This is a little bit of science for you. It creates a mountain. The mountain is not sitting on top of the earth, but it's actually a part of the earth as a whole. So when we look at Christ, even when we look at the words that he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, what he's actually saying is, you're seeing me as like the tip of an iceberg. You guys have heard that like only a small percentage of the iceberg is actually visible above the water and the mass majority of it is all underwater. He's saying, you've seen me and you're seeing the Father. You're seeing the face because He's the image of the invisible God. You're seeing it, but you're not necessarily seeing the whole thing. You're seeing the manifestation of God in the person of Jesus. You've seen the Father. But there's so much more. So when he's saying, on this rock, I'll build my church, he's talking about the revelation that Christ is the Son of God. So essentially what he's saying is, I'm going to build my church on Christ. And Christ is God. So I'm building my church on Christ, which is God. So essentially I'm building my church on the rock that is God. Does that make sense? I'm building my church on God. So, flesh and blood did not reveal this. I think we'll kind of start to kind of wind down and use this as kind of a conclusion. Do you guys remember, I'm going back to the John 3.16 series a lot, but you guys remember Nicodemus, man comes to Jesus by night, and he says, we know that you're from God because no one could do the miracles and the things that you do except he be from God. And Jesus' response is, unless you be born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. What he's essentially saying to Nicodemus is the same thing that he's saying to Peter. You didn't get this. The Holy Spirit, the Father, revealed this to you. This is a revelation from God of the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's just a tip. You're being shown a piece of the whole so that you can embrace the peace and thereby embrace the whole. That's why Jesus says, if you accept me, you accept the Father. But if you reject me, you're not just rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father. Does that make sense? You've got to take the peace that's shown. So what God and the Holy Spirit is doing is He's showing a peace of the kingdom of God. And whatever peace is shown to us, we take that and we embrace it and thereby we can get ourselves into understanding the whole one piece at a time. Now, Luke 24, where we were, was at, I read it and I kind of highlighted it when I was reading over it. It says Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. See, twice Jesus went through the Scriptures and showed them Himself in the Scripture, but they weren't able to understand it until God touched their mind and opened their mind where they can understand it. That's why when we pray, and I've taught this on Wednesday night before, when we approach Scripture, we pray and we say, God, help me to understand your word. Help me to see Jesus in your word. Help me to see the fullness of your word because your natural mind, the natural man cannot perceive the spiritual things. You are unable. That's why so many scholars and so many scientists and people in prison 
they read the Bible and they read the Bible and they read the Bible and they don't come to the knowledge of the truth because they're not allowing God to open their mind so that they can understand the Scripture. So we pray and we ask God to open our mind so we can understand what the Scripture is truly teaching us. And see, the problem is everyone wants a Moses, but nobody really wants God. And what I mean by that is everybody wants somebody. You guys remember the giving of the law? God appeared on the mountaintop, Moses went up, and the people, they heard the thunder, they heard the voice, they heard the shout, and they said, don't let this voice speak to us ever again. Moses, you get the revelation and you give it to us. And so many people, they want to come to church and they want to have a pastor or a preacher give them the Word or give them what the Word says. And all the time, God's at the mountaintop just saying, come. God's in the Word, and He's just saying, come. So we want a Moses that will go up to the mountain for us, all the while God's extending the invitation for us to climb the mountain and experience Him in His fullness ourselves. That's why Jesus says, we don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Therefore, come boldly under the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. You have the ability by the blood of Christ, He opened the veil, you have the ability to go through in His righteousness and interact with God on your own power because He has given you that privilege. So that's the whole point of this journey that we're on is to get you to understand that yes, I will teach the Bible to the best of my ability and even beyond that through the help of the Holy Spirit. But I want you guys as a church, as people coming up under and behind to get a hold of this concept that God will give you His Holy Spirit which will reveal His Word and you can meet God on your own behalf. On your own time, with or without me, you can meet God. You have that privilege. You have that availability to you. James says this, and we'll close. If anyone asks, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally, freely. Gives to everyone freely. Everyone that asks, He will give you that wisdom. What is wisdom? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Truthfully, He will give that to you, and He will not reproach or upbraid it or hold back he'll give it to you liberally ask and you shall receive knock and it shall be open seek and you shall find seek god in his word on your own behalf all right let's pray dear heavenly father lord thank you for the revelation of your word lord i ask that this become a reality and a truth in their life not just one that they understand in their mind but one that they embrace with the entirety of their being that they might come to you and realize that through the power of your holy spirit they have the ability to understand the things of the spirit the natural man can't perceive the things of the spirit because they're foolishness to him but whosoever is in god can perceive those the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes it. It's power. There's power in this gospel. All they've got to do is just open it and seek it. So God, I just ask that there be a holy urgency placed on everyone here that they have that urgency and that desire and that consuming passion to seek you in your word and to find you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.